The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss Russia's offensive in the Donbass, ask our China correspondent, Sophia Yan, how the war in Ukraine is being understood in Beijing, and we hear from Sarah Nui, the Telegraph's deputy global health editor, who's been on the ground in the Horn of Africa, seeing the impact of the war on food supplies firsthand. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 31st of May, day 97. And today, I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Francis Sternley, assistant comment editor, and Sophia Yan, the Telegraph's China correspondent. I started by asking Dom and Francis for the latest news from the battlefront. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been a day of uh, increased fighting in the Severodonetsk area. There are reports that up to half of the city of Severodonetsk has been, um, if not overtaken by Russian forces, and certainly has Russian forces in the in the city there. They are um, uncharacteristically going into a very large urban environment. I think that implies how seriously Russia takes the uh, capture of that city, and indeed that that will then likely be the the last pocket of the Luhansk Oblast that falls to Russia. So I think I think what we're seeing is is the uh, is the, is the push for that for that geographic line. Um, I would say that, and this happens in war. There are reversals, there are successes, there are setbacks. This this will be a setback for Ukraine, as we've mentioned many many times on this podcast. However. It is still a very, very small incremental gain by Russia, largely or mostly artillery led. They are they are pulverizing the ground and then sticking a flag on top of the rubble and saying, you know, con- conquest done. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a Pyrrhic victory, I, w- I would suggest. I'm not meaning to downplay it at all. I'm not I don't I, I advise strongly against veering from it's all it's all brilliant or it's all doom and gloom. I mean, this is war. OK, this is this is what this is what happens. So. Yes, it will be a, a setback for, for um, Kiev and uh, it will be a, a victory here for, for Russia. But, I mean, look, it's been two weeks now since we've said, wow, they've pushed on west from Papazhna um, and they're, they're making in- incremental gains. I've said many, many times that they've got their combined arms mojo together and they are knitting together infantry with armour, with artillery, with, with engineers, with air and so on and so forth. But, I mean, you know, it's been two weeks since they, since they got into Papazhna and they've not been able to link up with Liman and, and cut off that that little that that pocket of uh, of the Donbass, the Severodonetsk pocket. So, I mean, we should we shouldn't say, oh, they're they're, they're a busted flush. They're having to call up two sixty two and they can't go anywhere. But equally, neither should we say, well, this this is it. This is the end. This is the end of, of Ukraine. There's a huge amount of the Donbass still to go. If that is what if that is what Russia, if if we can take them at their war, their word, plot spoiler, no, we can't. But you know, if we take Russia at their word and they say that they're just after the, the liberating the Russian-speaking peoples of the Donbass, there's still a huge amount of real estate in uh, in the Donetsk Oblast to go uh, in order for them to do that. And they've shown how slowly they can they can 
creep forward in this pocket here. So I think it's some some way uh, before a, a major territorial gain is made. So I've rambled on a little bit there, but I'm sure we'll come back to that. Elsewhere around the front, we see uh, Russia increasing their pressure in Kharkiv. Remember, they were pushed out of uh, the north and northeast of Kharkiv some a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they, they are uh, they're still maintaining pressure up there. But equally, they are, they are under pressure in the south around the, the city of Kherson, where where Ukraine have made some limited uh, successful counterattacks. This just goes to show that that if you, I mean, what Russia have done in the Donbass is they've they've applied um, the, the maximum of concentration of force. The British military have ten principles of war, which I'll bore you with at some other some other time. But one of them is concentration of force. That is what Russia have done in the centre of the Donbass, around Severodonetsk. What it means, of course, is that firstly, there's a nice juicy target there. If only the Ukrainians had the MLRS and the, and the long-range artillery to hit it. But secondly, they've had to denude their forces elsewhere of combat power. And that, that might be a, a result of that might be what we're seeing around Kherson in the, in the south. But uh, I'll just take a pause there. I've been talking long enough. Well, we can come back to the, uh, the, the weapons that Ukraine has asked for and what they've got. Uh, but Francis Sternley, uh, yesterday European Union leaders agreed in principle to cut 90% of the oil imports from Russia by the end of this year. Uh, some claims this resolves a deadlock with Hungary over the bloc's sanctions. Um, can you talk more about this? What happened? Thanks, David. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Yes, it's been... If we, if we talked about this war in the context of the, the first stage, the first phase... Um, in military and diplomatic terms, I think it's fair to say that Ukraine won that phase. It broadly unified the Western world in providing support for it. Um, but I think as we enter now this second phase, uh, the question is whether it can win this in in the way that in the manner it, it did the first phase, as the support provided by the European Union and NATO uh, allies begins to bite. And of course, uh, we've talked already previously about the cost of living crisis and the pressure, increasing pressure that democratically elected leaders are having um, within uh, within Europe and the wider West. Um, and uh, And so these tensions that were once very clearly, um, um, well, I should say were hidden once and are now are, are much more are playing out in public within the European Union has now focused in on this one issue of um, oil imports, um, not gas, but just oil imports. As you say, the European Union has agreed in principle to cut 90% of oil imports from Russia by the end of this year. Um, that resolves a deadlock with Hungary, who were the toughest on on the European Union with regard to the amount of, uh, of, of oil that they still wish to buy from Russia. Now, uh, it is considered this a, a significant moment, a considerable diplomatic achievement um, that the European Union has managed to to find a way forward that, 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 that offers broad support among the 27 member states. But of course, seeing this tension playing out, seeing the manner in which Hungary and other countries have been more reluctant to completely wean themselves off Russian oil and gas is in some ways playing, I think, to, to Putin, in, into Putin's hands because he firmly believes, um, and with some evidence, as we've seen in the recent days, that um, the longer the war goes on, the greater that the these tensions will spill over within the uh, um, the Western world and ultimately interest in the war will fade 
trade and the pressure triggered by the energy and, and, and economic consequences of the war will eventually lead to um, compromises needing to be made in and some sort of um, peace deal signed with Ukraine that may or may not um, grant Russia some territorial gains. So um, that's the sort of backdrop to this. And it's been interesting. I've been reading some of the European reaction to, uh, to, to the deal Obviously, as one would expect in Hungary, this has gone down extremely well amongst the uh, um, the sort of the state media there, saying that uh, that that, that um, Viktor Orban has protected Hungarian fact, um, families. Um, in Germany, the, the the sort of analysis of this is is mainly around the sort of fierce row behind the scenes and the sacrifices that were willing to be made, but ultimately there had to be certain exceptional uh, rules that were or. or uh, Overtures made to some of the other powers that were less willing to wean themselves off of off Russian gas. Interestingly, in, in Italy, um, there's discussion about just how the, the extent to which this sixth round of sanctions is now considerably watered down to what uh, was initially proposed. And if that's true, then I th- as, as I think it is, it does suggest that, that some of that unity that I mentioned in the first phase of the war is is fading. Um, just one final remark on this issue of, 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 of oil. Um We've been talking about it in, in these terms of, uh, of sort of blanket bans, etc. And that, what, and I think we all imagine this sort of visual image of a tap being turned off and then purchasing oil or, or gas from elsewhere. But actually, there's increasing evidence that there are loopholes in this embargo that means that plenty of oil may still be actually getting through both to the UK and, and to the rest of Europe. It's done through this sort of process of, of, of basically mixing. Um, so... If Russian diesel, which the UK imports in in large quantity, is mixed with fuel from somewhere else, say, then it, it magically sort of no more no longer counts as Russian um, in terms of how it's measured. And this, of course, is, is is the case with many other countries that are buying buying their their oil from elsewhere. So I just wanted to mention that because, as I say, a lot of creative trading is taking place, which I think muddies the waters somewhat and explains, I think, the rather concerning fact that actually in terms of shipments of oil from Russia are at a three-year high. And one would not be expecting that, given the pressure um, uh, that, the, the, at least as far as the European Union concerned, is being put on Russia. So I'll pause there, but this is, this is a very complicated area. But progress is being made, but I think progress more slowly than in those initial weeks of the war. And, and that is perhaps a, a, a point of concern as we think longer term about the duration of this conflict. Well, before we talk about weapons, let's quickly talk about the uh, continuing Russian blockade of Ukrainian seaports. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky has said that the blockade is preventing Kyiv from exporting 22 million tons of grain and uh, he raises that the, the, the threat of famine in countries dependent on this grain uh, is, 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 is now here and also suggested uh, yesterday that this could create a new migration crisis. Um, we actually do, we will have an interview later on the podcast with Sarah Newey from our Global Health Desk who's in the Horn of Africa to see conditions for herself on the ground. But before that, um, Francis, could you just take us through what, what Zelensky was saying and, and why? Yes, well, yeah, you say you've, you've summarised it um, um, uh, very well that it's this, this idea that there's a threat of a new migration crisis um, alleviate, not alleviated but accentuated by um, the food 
um, situation. We've talked many times on the podcast about the amount of, of, of Ukraine being this sort of image of the breadbasket of, of, of Europe and actually the wider world. And of course, that when its grain supplies have, are, are cut off, then that has a huge um, impact. And just to sort of give this into a broader com- um a broader context. I was reading a piece in the in the Economist a couple of weeks ago that was saying that you know the longer that the war does drag on and the supplies from Russia and Ukraine are limited, the kind of metrics we're talking about here over a prolonged period are hundreds of millions of people more likely to fall into poverty as it's measured by global indexes and things. And of course, in terms of the impact that will have, you, you get accentuated political unrest, um, not only people starving, but children's development being um, um, stunted, which has very prolonged um, uh, and harmful effects. So um, this it was already a terrible year, 2022. China, um, um, I'm sure Sophia can talk about this, is the largest wheat producer, um, had uh, basically delayed its planting this year, so I understand. And so it may be some of the worst ever yield as a consequence of poor weather. The Horn of Africa is being ravaged by drought and you've got Ukraine and you've got Russia. So this is a very serious um, issue and one, of course, that the global community is looking at very closely. Um, but it, I think until we really feel the the impact here, and I say here in terms of in Britain and in the Western world sharply, I think it will remain to be a ba- it will remain a background issue um, with a until suddenly it's no longer able to be a background issue. And I think politically elected, democratically elected political leaders are are looking very closely at this and worry about their own stability because you can bet your bottom dollar that. Uh, as as reasons to be uh, to be pushed elected out or, or not elected um, by the public, number one or near the top of that is of course going to be not being able to put food on the table. So um, a, a, a big issue and one that no doubt will be at the forefront of of, of our analysis in the coming days and weeks. Thank you very much, Francis. Um, well, before we bring Sophia Yan into the conversation, um, Dom, I know you had some thoughts about some of the diplomacy and uh, the promises of weapons uh, to Ukraine that you wanted to bring up. I'm just aware that we haven't chatted much about um, Joe Biden's comments about long range artillery or the, the, the comments he made about not providing any weapons that, that could could strike Russia and the, and the confusion that that caused. It would be um, it'd be great to hear someone from the from the Biden team, actually, if they were if they were able to uh, to get in touch and sort of give any clarification on this. That'd be that'd be wonderful. But essentially, Joe, Joe Biden said that he's well, so he so he didn't say that he, he was acting because he was worried about the provocative stance any further weapon supplies to Ukraine um, uh, might might be perceived by Russia and, and, and another step up the escalatory ladder. However, he said that they wouldn't be supplying uh, weapons to, to Ukraine that, that could strike targets in Russia. So on the face of it, a completely nonsensical statement, because actually any, any weapon can be fired into Russia, you know, small arms. Even I could fire a, a 9 mil pistol into, into Russia if I was, you know, five metres away. So, you know... The, the weapons that have already been supplied can can strike Russia, and so on the face of it, it, it didn't make sense. Um, and you know, if you if you need any justification or, or any 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 you know, small p proof that this was was a mistake, you've got Dmitry Medvedev, former Russian prime minister and and president, when he was doing the sort of hokey cokey with Vladimir Putin in the the president's chair. He's now Russia's Security Council chairman. But you know, he he said he came out this morning and said that uh, said that the state this statement from from Joe Biden was quote rational. So you know if you've got Dmitry Medvedev backing you up and saying that, that what you're saying is 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 a smart thing to do, then you, you should 
possibly chalk that one up as another as another gaff which i think which i think it was or certainly it certainly needs qualification now it's being interpreted as uh, america saying that whilst it, it it may well supply mlrs the multiple launch rocket systems which can go can go you know huge distances um hundreds of kilometers but it might america might be edging away from supplying the atacams which is the army tactical missile system this is a, this is a, a a gps guided so satellite guided munition um that can go about 300 k's 190 miles ish um yeah but very very accurate very capable basically a surface to surface um uh, ballistic missile in in, a, in effect um Sorry, not no, well, it's not ballistic because it doesn't go by by gravity. It's GPS guided, but a very accurate missile that can go a very long way. So, so this could be a kind of missile that could strike much further into Russia, and that might be deemed by the Biden administration as an escalatory step too far. The M triple seven howitzers, the the towed howitzers that are that they've been supplying, um, I think about ninety of which are, are currently in in theatre in in Ukraine. Out of I think one hundred and ten, they've they've promised. I mean, these can go thirty or forty k's. So, from the outskirts of um, of Kharkiv, they'll be able to they'll be able to hit into into Russia. They'll probably be able to threaten Belgorod. To be honest, the big logistics supply dump in in Belgorod. So, so it is a nonsensical statement. It's being interpreted as as a message saying that the the really long range stuff is not going to be supplied. Um, but it's just a statement he didn't need to make. You know, he didn't need to put himself in this position where people are now second guessing, backtracking, whitewashing the statement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't know why um, President Biden does this. He puts himself in this position. It's a gift to Russia. It, um, whilst it might be interpreted, if I've interpreted it correctly, and that is the interpretation that Ukraine have taken from it, they might go, "Oh, blimey, that was a bit of a mistake." But they're still going to supply us with with a lot a lot of good stuff. But even if that's the case, you know, you can't help if. You, but but feel for the Ukrainian fighters listening to this stuff, thinking, "Oh, come on! You know, when are you gonna when are you gonna go all in on this?" Um, it's just it's just a, a mistake that didn't need to happen. Um, I don't think there'll be any more comebacks from it because I would imagine the administration would just want to put it to bed and, and, and move on because to, to try and just, justify it now we'll probably get them in, into even more you know, political wrangles um, and and poor messaging to Russia. So I imagine they will say nothing more and move on. And it's left to us to sort of nitpick over the over the ashes and see what we can we can draw out of it. But I think it was a mistake that, that Biden didn't me- need to make. Thanks very much, uh, Dom. Um, Sophia Yan, thank you so much for joining our conversation. We've had um, Sophia on this podcast a few times before, um, actually towards the beginning of the war. Uh, so it's been a few weeks since we've heard um, from you and we've heard from how the Chinese position has potentially evolved. I guess my first question is, is, is the war in Ukraine still still big news in China? Is it something on the news covered daily or has it really faded out of the public consciousness? Uh, the answer to that is both yes and no. Uh, and it's great to be back on with you guys again. Uh, Chinese state media is still covering the war in Ukraine. And as usual, Beijing continues to trumpet the Russian side, including all of the disinformation, everything that Russia is saying, China's happy to uh, escalate and amplify. But you have to remember that China never had wall-to-wall coverage the way many international news outlets did, like, like ours. So much of what the Chinese public knows and understands is what has been presented via official channels. So Beijing is still largely calling it a, quote, special military operation, which, as we all know, is how Putin has characterized this invasion. There's a lot of U.S. blaming, pointing the finger, saying that Washington's to, to at fault 
for this situation. I mean, Chinese state media even saying what Russians have said, saying that uh, Russian intelligence uh, found evidence that the U.S. is actively recruiting ISIS terrorists to fight in Ukraine. I mean, all of this is really part of what China wants to have as the big picture, which is that it is still about the U.S. versus China and that China is somewhat on side with Russia, which is very different from what they say publicly. Publicly, Beijing keeps saying that they want to be neutral, that they aren't taking sides, they want to see peace in the world. But of course, then you see what's in state media and the kinds of calls that they have, the kinds of diplomatic outreach that they have. They haven't really had so much with Ukraine, but they've had plenty with the Russians. And so you see how what they say and what they do absolutely don't match up. Moving to moving away from state media, how how do you think the Chinese political leadership um, have reacted to the war so far? What kind of lessons do you think they're taking? Well, for China, the, the most um, obvious context to be thinking about this is the issue of Taiwan. Now, the difference between Russia, Ukraine, and China, Taiwan is that Beijing views Taiwan as this inalienable part of the country. They brook no dissent. They consider Taiwan. Uh, part of the mainland, there's no question about it. And so it's actually even more, uh, a a deeper attachment, I would say, than Putin's obsession with Ukraine. So reuniting Taiwan with the mainland, this is one of what the ruling Communist Party in China considers its main goals. This is something that the current leader, Xi Jinping, has made, uh, you know, it's this mantle. He's talked about it every time he has an opportunity for a big speech, especially if there's a military parade involved. He makes it clear that he stands for what Beijing calls the one China principle, this idea that China and Taiwan belong together. And and so this is an issue, of course, because there is a question of whether or not Beijing would choose to move on Taiwan the way Putin has moved on Ukraine and, and what could come to pass if that were to happen. China's military, bigger, more formidable than Russia's. Its economy also much, much bigger, more resilient. And it's so intertwined with many other nations. So rallying support for economic sanctions against China, this could be quite challenging. It may be much more difficult to isolate China than it is to isolate Russia. And because it would have all these potential secondary consequences on other nations whose supply chains, for instance, rely on decent trade relations with China. And just talking about the economics of the conflict, um, Russia has found itself incredibly economically isolated thanks to Western sanctions. How has China reacted to that? This is interesting because I I think that China is taking stock of how the West has moved. The West, uh, to its credit, did react strongly and very quickly, very swiftly, as it should. And this, I think, is something that will give China pause. In advance of what happened in Ukraine, uh, the invasion, China was already working toward making its own economy much more self-reliant. Beijing does this a lot. They, they often use trade relations as a way to pinch other countries in the midst of diplomatic spats. And so what China wants to do is that nobody else, to make sure that no other country can do that in retaliation to China. So there is a move for Beijing to try to shore up its own economy, to not be reliant on anybody else, so that they don't face an issue of supply chain disruption going the other way around. So there is a move for China to make sure that it can stand on its own two feet, because now it has seen an example of how other countries may react if push came to shove. And so this is actually very instructive for Beijing, learning how to prevent the kind of pain that Russia is feeling now if it were to move, if China were to move in the future on Taiwan. Thanks, Sophia. Just one more question from me, if I may, before I know Dom and Francis will, will want to jump in as well. Um, the previous times we've, we've had you on this podcast, you've, you've talked about how Beijing is really in this sort of juggling act between 
you know, they're in a, between a rock and a hard place. That this is not a position. I think I remember you saying that the Chinese leadership wanted to be put in to side with the West against Russia or to side with Russia against the West. How how is that juggling act going? Are they are they, are they do you see them leaning towards more more towards one side or the other, or are they keeping are they keeping uh, as equitable as they can? Well, China is trying to stay on message with its declaration of apparent neutrality. And at home, at least, COVID's been a a pretty big distraction. Zero COVID policy in China. Lockdowns galore. 2022 in China feels just like it did in 2020 when the pandemic first kicked off. Uh, But for Xi Jinping, for the leader of China, this is a politically important year. And so what he's trying to do is to maintain stability at home. You know, this idea that uh, if they're too on side with Russia, the fact that China could then be hit by secondary sanctions is absolutely not an option. And so what China has been trying to pivot toward is uh, increasing its diplomatic influence to limit damage to its already rocky ties with both the U.S., and Europe. And at the end of the day, you have to remember that China is really most concerned about its own self-interests. Experts think that will limit how much of a hand Beijing will play over the war in Ukraine. And you have seen this move uh, in the last couple of weeks for China to try to think and, and talk about other issues. You know, the foreign minister, for instance, is on this island hopping tour to try to build influence in the Pacific Islands. You know, They're trying to just tr- uh, distract a little bit from what's happening in Ukraine. And this is, for China, a huge problem. The longer the war drags on, of course, the more pain there is felt for, for everyone involved, for the entire world. But for China, it continues to put Beijing in this really difficult position where it can't side with the U.S. The U.S. is its uh, arch enemy when it comes to values. But it can't so much publicly, vocally side with Russia, because then, of course, that draws the ire from the rest of the world. So there's a balancing act here that China's trying to play. And I think what's interesting about Ukraine and the U.S. and versus Taiwan in the U.S. is that what we're seeing is uh, this interest from the West to try to make clear that there are security guarantees involved, that the, the West backs Ukraine, that the West will back Taiwan. But when it comes to the Taiwan question, any more of an explicit U.S. security guarantee might actually reduce rather than support and enhance deterrence. It might actually then prompt China to challenge the U.S. on whether or not it would actually come to Taiwan's rescue. This is absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much, Sophia. Um, Francis and Dom, you've been listening to this. Um, what are your thoughts? And I'm sure you have questions for Sophia as well. Yeah, I just wanted to ask. Um, I, it was very interesting hearing President Biden's remarks on Taiwan, I believe it was last week, um, that was essentially suggesting that, that they would be willing to militarily intervene uh, were China to invade. Do you think that is... Do you think war in, over Taiwan has become more or less likely as a consequence of, of Ukraine? This is a really interesting uh, debate. For From China's perspective... Nothing will impact uh, its decision-making um, calculus when it comes to when and in what way to move on Taiwan. China will only do this if it knows it can succeed. And it will only do this if it's politically a positive, if, if Beijing can do it quickly, if it can help Xi Jinping or, or whoever's in charge at that point to shore up their legacy. I mean, this is very much all about China's self-interest. And of course, uh, as, as I said before, the way the West has reacted Gives, may give China some pause. At least that's what the West seems to be banking on. That's what Biden, for instance, is hoping is happening, that 
Russia's setbacks in Ukraine will mean that China pauses a little bit, takes a deep breath and thinks about what happens if it were to actually get into a conflict with Taiwan. Uh, But the U.S., you know, there's a huge debate in foreign policy circles there about how to approach this issue of Taiwan. Some people think uh, hanging on to this idea of what they call strategic ambiguity is, is good, basically not making any sort of implicit or explicit outward guarantee that the U.S. would come to support Taiwan. Of course, there's military support and military coordination. Even right now, there's a U.S. senator in Taiwan. A lot of these visits, of course, show that there is support and interest in making sure that peace uh, maintains the status, continues to be the status quo. But the concern is if not enough is said, will that give, will that embolden China? But then on the flip side, if too much is said, will that embolden China? So this is this is this, this uh, you know age old question about how the U.S. ought to present itself. Just as as a follow up to that, I, I, it's fascinating hearing hearing your perspective on this. I mean, one of the things that we've talked about many times on this podcast is this idea about whether we are, in a sense, already in a second Cold War um, with. Uh, China with Russia and other autocratic regimes. And it's just a matter of time before the West wakes up to that. Or perhaps, as we've discussed as well, that's that's overestimating Russia's importance um, and military capabilities, particularly. Um, do you think that this has pushed autocratic regimes closer together? Or do you think actually this is m- m- making China most specifically Think, think twice about how it needs to operate on the international stage. You know, honestly, China seems to want to have its cake and eat it too. Uh, China, especially Xi Jinping, is interested in working with Russia to create a new international system, one that's shaped to their benefit as opposed to a world order dominated by the U.S., the broader West. Russia is obviously key to making that happen. And so the two, China and Russia, have a strategic partnership aligned on values. They're not allies in the Western sense in that they aren't going to help each other out no matter what, but they'll help each other out when it works for both of them. So very much opportunistic frenemies. But at the same time, China wants to play friendly to a certain extent with the U.S. I mean, China does see the U.S. as a strategic competitor, as a rival, but this is a globalized world that we live in. China and the U.S. have to work together. I mean, they have to somehow maintain the peace between the two of them. And China is very interested in having stronger ties with Europe, particularly on trade. So it's a it's a really tough high wire balancing act right now for China. They want to be able to maintain what they think is the superior political system, this authoritarian regime. Um, they don't want other nations to be commenting or meddling on their internal affairs. So they don't want anyone to say anything about Taiwan or Hong Kong. But at the same time, they want the West to at least be somewhat on site enough to ink those business and trade deals, right? This is important for the economy for China, the world's second largest economy, already suffering also from the pandemic still uh, three years in. So it's, it's really complicated. I mean, China wants to play hardball, but also be friends. And I'm not sure you can really have it both ways. If I could jump in there, I'm sorry, Sophia, this is another have it both ways type question. Um, China, China, wants stability to trade and grow and and all the things you've been describing but at the same time wants instability to shake up the international world order the the peace from the second world war um and and in in those ways is 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 quite helpful for china what the questions this war is throwing up for the world i just wonder where you thought we were or sorry where china is on that how much instability is is enough 
um, and and what kind of things might might be deemed too much? How what would what would cause uh, what actions could Russia take that you think China might view as just going going a little too far, introducing too much instability to the to the equation right now? From Beijing's perspective, I would imagine this is already going too far. Uh, China will never obviously admit that they welcomed Putin with, uh, you know, arms wide open right before Putin moved on Ukraine. He visited Beijing. He was the first state leader to visit China since the pandemic kicked off. First world leader that she met in person face to face. I mean, he's been she's been very worried about catching COVID himself. He hasn't left China for nearly three years at this point. So it was a big show. Putin came for the Winter Olympics and right after the games finished, he invaded Ukraine. So this, in a way, is already way out of control for Beijing. This is very possibly a situation that they never wanted to see. And it's also possible that they thought if this were to come, that it would have been resolved already by now. We don't really know what Putin said to Xi and what what came back in those conversations that they had. But right now, this is already way out of control for Beijing because we're talking about sanctions from the West to Russia that can impact China. They share a massive land border, so China doesn't want any sort of political instability or strife. There's been this big question of what sort of support China may offer Russia, what sort of material support, whether that's supplies, uh, because they share that land border, military support, any sort of buffer on sanctions. But again, China doesn't want to be put in that position. On values, yes, they side with Russia, but how much pain are they willing to take for their their neighbor, for Russia? Is it worth that? Is it worth this sort of damage and this extra strain to China? And from Beijing's perspective, I would think that they would really say no, because this year is a banner year politically for China. From their perspective, this is in July, the 25th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from the Brits back to Beijing. Then later this fall and next spring, Xi Jinping is expected to take on his third term, this unprecedented third term. So all China really wants is to be able to say that it's got good relations with the world, that it's got the domestic economy under control, that it's conquered COVID, that everything is just peachy. And all of this, this entire war in Ukraine is making it really very difficult for them to be able to do that. And just one final one, if I may, I'd be interested if you if you had a view on on China's view of the Quad, so the U.S., Japan, uh, India, Australia um, group, not 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 an, an alliance, but a, a a group. And I wonder if if China would would look at the effect um, that Russia's invasion has had on NATO, i.e., Sweden and Finland apply to join, almost certainly going to going to do so once uh, once um, we get over the troubles with uh, Turkey's President Erdogan. So I wonder if if China looks at something like the Quad and something like AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US deal, the, the science and tech and military deal, uh, and sees that that whilst on the one hand, yes, the, the, the world needs to trade with China, of course, and any, any military action, I hope they're taking the lesson that there's no definites here, that this, this idea that a much larger Russian force is just going to walk into Kiev and, and that's shown to be a fallacy, whether China's taken the, the view that, that it's not, you know, war is not easy, it's not straightforward. And do you think that they they fear alliances and groupings such as the Quad or an expanded Quad um, building up against them? This 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 alliance or this this international coming together of of groups. Do they actually worry about that, or are they just too big to 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 not have to take that into account? To a certain extent, the allies banding together, this, the Quad you mentioned, uh, the AUKUS deal, all of this does 
pose a challenge to China. And AUKUS is right in its backyard, right? It's, this is, it's, it's next door, basically. And China's made a big push to try to grow its influence in that part of the world around Australia and the Pacific Islands. Uh, that encroaches onto some U.S. territories as well, moving toward Hawaii, for instance. Um, so it is of concern to Beijing. But at the same time, China's view, and the reason why China doesn't have traditional alliances the way the West does is because it actually views, Beijing views those alliances as having been the downfall of the West or the start, at least, of the downfall of the West. You know, Beijing doesn't think that it makes sense to have a friend's back no matter what through thick and thin. They're very much self-centered in that regard. And so that's you know, a perfect example is China-Russia. They're not going to always have Russia's back. They will have Russia's back when it makes sense, when it's good for Beijing, but only when it's good for Beijing. And so, again, that's why we're in such a complicated position for China right now and trying to figure out how to deal with Ukraine. I mean, China has, or at least did, have trade ties with Ukraine, for instance. So it's trying to have its finger, you know, all its fingers in the pie, basically. Um, and there are moves that China's making to try to counter the Quad and AUKUS. You know, China tried to very recently curry more favor with India, even though it also considers India a bit of a competitor. Um, it, it's a complicated calculation for China, absolutely. If I just, I just have one more question, which I think connects all of the ones we've, we've just been talking about, which is a rather fundamental one, I suppose, which is do you think that China is in a stronger position now than it was, say, five years ago or perhaps even um, in 2020 with before the pandemic? Um, because obviously, in, in, according to traditional analysis, you would say a country, any country around the world, that, that, that in a sense, it's through its censorious laws and also perhaps even through um, concealment was responsible for a global pandemic. I know that's debatable, but that's that's one um, uh, argument um, as to what occurred um, in 2020. Um, normally you would expect that that country to become something of a international pariah. But that doesn't seem to have been the case with China. And if anything, China's economic strength and stability in comparison to the West seems to be greatly elevated. So I just wanted to hear your take on whether you think China is actually in a, in a better position now than it was only a matter of years ago. The more time that drags on, the more China's economy becomes intertwined with the world. There are so many nations, and we saw this very clearly at the start of the pandemic with the with PPE, even getting ingredients, for instance, for pharmaceuticals to make the vaccines. China's such uh, it's so intertwined with the ability for other nations to conduct trade or to build widgets, you know, the supply chain situation. So the more time that goes on, the more. Uh, integrated China really becomes. But what has happened over the last few years with the pandemic is this uh, very clear, sudden realization of how dependent and how reliant some nations actually are on China and what that means, what the risks are that come along with that. So it's a little bit of a, a, um, you know, it's hard to say which way that's swinging. Uh, The issue of China and the potential risk or threat of the rise of China. That's how a lot of politicians in other countries are characterizing it. This has become, uh, in so many ways, a domestic political issue. I mean, politicians are campaigning on China policies, on their China stance. So there is an awareness. So even though at the same time, China is becoming so much more tied and, and integrated in the world, there is a growing awareness of what that means. I mean, there's no way... There's a discussion of decoupling that was uh, talked about a lot in the context of U.S. and China. There's almost no way that that can happen. I mean, think about how we live these days. I mean, 
that's impossible to a certain extent. Um, but the other issue is China's military, which for many years, for decades, really, China has worked on this big modernization campaign. And so the question also has come, we've seen how Russia's military is done in Ukraine. Well, then there's the question of how China's military might fare if it were actually to be thrown into active conflict. And the military, the PLA that China has is huge. It's, it's, it's much bigger than Russia's. And they've spent many years trying to build advanced technology that the military could then use. And that, China always says, is for deterrence. It's to make sure that nobody will bully Beijing and that it won't use it as a way to be ever on the offensive. But that's what they say and what they do is another story. So uh, that remains to be seen. Um, And whether or not, for instance, the U.S. could match China's prowess, that also remains to be seen. But the Chinese military is really largely untested in battle. They have very little combat experience and corruption's rife, you know, and a lot of other militaries, if your commanding officer tells a soldier to charge that hill, that soldier's probably going to charge that hill. But if you're talking about the Chinese military uh, and you're talking about soldiers who think that their superiors are there because of corruption, will they still act and follow orders? I mean, we don't have answers to any of that. And so that has a lot to do with, I think, uh, how much power China can project and how much power China would really have on the ground if push came to shove. I just wanted to pick up on, on, on one thing you said there about financial entanglement between the West and, and China. I mean, it seems to me that that's something that's been underlined by the Ukraine crisis, but arguably this has been a, a theme for much longer, is the sort of the new diplomatic consensus based on the belief that the West, all the, we, all the West needed to do was to maintain the flow of commerce with, with Russia and China and, and that the forces of capitalism and liberalism would eventually undermine their autocratic systems has fundamentally been shown to be very, I'd say, arrogant, um, uh, certainly naive. Um, and as an addition to that, I think that this point about globalisation is exactly why President Zelensky should be very concerned with the cost of living crisis and the food crisis and the energy crisis that's been uh, triggered or at least accentuated by the war. Because ultimately, I think exactly as you say, financial markets are so entangled now that what may well occur is that whilst the the hawks, the foreign policy hawks who've been very critical of of, of Russia and and China in recent years, um, they will be outmaneuvered by the looming economic catastrophe um, and steered by, in Europe at least, Germany and France, the EU will eventually ease sanctions against Russia and globalisation and appeasement will will win untampered and the liberal consensus will, will resume because ultimately this, there's this sort of naive belief that, that money is the force that spreads peace around the world rather than, than morals. And actually, that, that decades of having that policy means it means very, very, it becomes very, very difficult to disentangle yourself when suddenly people you've been treating as financial allies prove to be military foes. Um, and I, I think it, I can't see a, a clear way out of this when we are faced with the economic ramifications of, of, of the war uh, and, and the devastation that it may that it may reap on, on as I say, millions of people being lunged into poverty. And as a consequence of that, normally you would expect that, 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 that financial concerns will trump any other. Um, but, yeah, interested to hear, hear your take and, and, and hear if there's, if, if, if there's any if there's any hope, Sophia. <laughs> yeah, I would say that even within China, for many, many years, especially coming out of the 80s, this is when 
the country was opening up its economy, the 80s and the 90s. I think if you'd asked anybody then living in the country and, and overseas Chinese, they would have said the same thing. Everybody expected that as the economy grew uh, for innovation to continue and for growth to continue, that China would have to liberalize in terms of values and rights, uh, freedoms, various liberties. Uh, and when Xi Jinping came in 10 years ago, it's been 10 years under him, if you can believe it, time flies, uh, there was a thought that he would be a reformer. I mean, he was um, of red heritage. You know, he had a father who had a big legacy as well, um, but also suffered. Um, uh, and, and he was a bit younger. There was this thinking that maybe he would turn the ship the right way. Uh, but instead, he's taken the country really pretty backwards. Uh, you know, I, I've been speaking to a lot of people um, lately, and the only way I can describe it is that we had the Cultural Revolution, then we had Tiananmen, and now we have this period of time. That is how tight things have become in China. It's something that nobody could have uh, anticipated 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's a system and a model that literally no other nation has ever done. And at least when it comes to the internal situation and stability within the country, what China's always banked on is that if they can continue to make sure that the next generation is economically viable and actually doing better, that its people will then buy less freedom, that this is the, this is the uh, implicit sort of guarantee, this is the deal that they have been given. Uh, and it seems to be working. And that's also part of why the country is so, the nation's so worried. I'm sorry, the government is so concerned that the nation's economy is suffering under COVID. If they can't keep that guarantee, that economic guarantee going forward, then what happens? So, again, you know, this, this war in Ukraine makes that economic growth a, a huge problem. It's a challenge to whether or not China can maintain that particular promise it gave its people. And I think that's something we, we discussed on the podcast previously is this idea that perhaps the real threat of China is not military. Uh, it's it's this sort of idea that because it offers this this model of, of sort of autocratic capitalism that seems on the surface, at least, to, to be working, um, that, that this is a model that other countries will seek to imitate um, and and will become sort of more centralised, and etc. And as a consequence of that, it will be a sort of soft power success rather than a, than a hard power success in the long term. But of course, you know, that's, that's, um, it's, it's far too early, arguably, to say that. But I think that's something to be, to be sensitive to. But it's important when we're thinking about the context of Ukraine, that with China watching, with Russia watching, that their policy decisions, and of course, their populations watching too, that will have big ramifications for, um, for, 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 that, for that very question in, in, in the years ahead. Absolutely. I think that the Ukraine issue is the more, obviously this is a very immediate concern right now in China and Russia, this sort of a long term concern that they pose. These have to be looked at side by side. Uh, and right now, of course, there's so much focus on where Ukraine is, but we risk losing sight of what this means uh, many years down the line with China and with Russia. In his nightly address on Tuesday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky warned of famine in countries dependent on Ukraine's grain. He even suggested the Russian blockade could help create a new migration crisis. So to understand how the war is affecting the regions most dependent on Ukrainian produce, I spoke to Sarah Newey, the Telegraph's deputy global health editor, who was recently on the ground in East Africa. Can you tell us why you were going there and what did you see? So I was in Smiland, but the whole of the region is currently in the worst drought for 40 years. It should be raining right now. It really isn't. Where I was, it was the land was so 
barren, mostly flat, either completely flat as a pancake or completely mountainous, no real in between. The sun was baking, you know, up to 40 degrees. And we basically would go to these, you know, driving through the countryside, seeing these riverbeds that are just rivers of sand or huge pools that used to be an oasis where people could take their livestock, where there's no water. So it's quite a bad situation already. But it's been made worse by global affairs. Even before Ukraine war, prices were soaring. So in Somalia, which internationally, Somaliland is recognised as part of Somalia, although it's really its own de facto country. Mm. But across Somalia, prices had increased by 36% from February 2021 to February 2022, even before the war, because of COVID disruptions, mounting debt, the inflation that we've seen. And Ukraine is basically been a final straw that's tipping the region into crisis. So before, crisis. We, before we talk about Ukraine, tell us a bit more about what, what, what are the people in Somaliland are telling you when, when you're interviewing them? Yeah, so it was fascinating, actually. One of the things that really came across, um, we were in some quite remote areas of the country where the crisis has been most keenly felt. These are people who are pastoralists mainly, so they have camels, they have sheep, they have goats, and their livestock has been decimated by drought after three years. You drive along and you see carcasses of goats kind of lying on the side of the road. So, you know, I spoke to a lady called Fahima, who her family used to have well over 100 livestock, now they're down to 20 for a family of eight. It doesn't sustain them anymore. There are concerns that the drought is undermining a whole way of life. So even before Ukraine, as you said, it was a bad situation where people are struggling, you know, their livestock, their life is their livelihoods. People would say to me, Sarah, you know, this looks like my animals, but this is my savings and this is my lifestyle. Like, what do I do without them? If the animals have gone, I can't, I can't feed my children. And the other problem is that when there's a lack of water and you can't feed these animals, they also get sicker and frail themselves. So they're producing less milk. They can't sell them at the markets because they're not healthy enough. So it's it's not a good situation. Let's let's put in now as as a as a piece of the jigsaw the the war in Ukraine. Before we talk about the impact of the grain embargo, uh, the grain and blockade. Sorry, can you tell us how what why was Ukrainian grain and, and and other exports so important to the Horn of Africa before the war? Yeah, so it the situation has really exposed the dependence on imports from both Russia and Ukraine. So Somalia, for instance. 90% of wheat imports would come from the Black Sea region, Russia and Ukraine before the war. And you kind of see that across Ethiopia, across Somalia, across Kenya as well. So although they might not be the biggest importers of wheat or grain, mm. and also we shouldn't forget sunflower oil as well. If you look at the proportions that are coming from that region, it's very high. So, you know, there are real concerns that, you know, I think they were estimating now that about 25 million tonnes of grain rotting in silos or, you know, that, that Russia are weaponising the supplies of grain. That's really going to hit the Horn of Africa badly because, as we've been, just been talking about, it was already a bad situation. It doesn't take much to increase the prices. So, you know, I was on the ground. I was talking to a woman about their situation and, and one, one lady called Muna, whose daughter was in intensive care in a hospital in a town called Barao. She... I mean, her child was tiny. She was four months old and she weighed less than three kilograms. Gosh. Really, really tiny. And she was telling me she goes to the market to try and buy 15 kilograms of rice. It used to cost her the equivalent of about six, seven dollars, you know, just two months ago. Now we're up to 10, 
$10, $50, So when you don't have much money in your livestock and your livelihood and life has become harder anyway, and then you increase, see that price increase, the consequences are pretty stark. Did you get any sense from the people you spoke to about their sympathies or their thoughts about the war? I mean, if, if they're realising that it's affecting them right there, mm. did, did they tell you about what they thought about Russia's blockade or Ukraine's fight? Or what do they say? So we'd had some conversations with, for instance, like the town mayor of a town called Baral, who was saying it's an unfortunate situation we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. This is a war 5,000 miles away from the region, which isn't you know, parts of southern Somalia, for instance, has its own problems with instability. I think there's a, a bit of a sense of, it's hard, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, mm. but there, there definitely is a sense of frustration that events so far away have such a big impact on them. I think there's also a sense of confusion around, you know, increasing frequency of drought more generally. I didn't speak to women about in markets about what they thought of the war. They were much more preoccupied about how they were going to feed their kids. But it definitely came up in conversations with officials, you know, whether they're British officials in Hargesia, the capital of Smiland, or officials out in the towns that we spoke to. I think there's a feeling of what is going on with the world. Sarah, you've painted a quite a picture of a, a region suffering from numerous factors outside of, outside of its own control. What's being done about this? And what, what can the world be done? Or, or is the near future looking quite bleak? Well, I think that's a really interesting point. And I forgive me if I go into what sounds like a history lesson. I don't <laughs> want to do that. But um, the Horn of Africa has been hit by three major famines in the last 11 years. We had one in 2011 where 260,000 people died. The international community really didn't respond quickly enough. Then in 2016, 2017, same signals were happening. And everyone, everyone has said in 2011, never again. And in 2016... 17, we had actually a really effective response and famine was averted. For a bit of context, that year the UK provided £861 million of funding. This year, people are saying that we're kind of at the same level if you look at the indicators compared to 2011, 2011, where we were going then. But unlike 2017, I mean, we have a world that has been you know, hit by so many multiple crises, whether that's Afghanistan, you know, even before Ukraine, we had Afghanistan, you know, war in Yemen, Syria etc which taking a lot of of resources quite rightly but the UK has committed 40 million pounds so far this year to respond to the crisis so there there's a sense you know speaking to the world food program who um, said that they're having to take food from the hungry to feed the starving they've already had to cut programs in Somalia to prevent malnutrition so they can treat the cases of malnutrition that are cropping up so that's you know especially bad for southern Somalia which as I said earlier you know, 81,000 people are already living in pockets of famine there. So I think there's a sense that the international community is trying, but is really not doing enough. When we were were sat in in a small town, kind of in what felt like the middle of nowhere, um, I was very pleased to be inside after burning, burning my face off in the, you know, near 40 degree heat and um, having this conversation with some town officials. And one of them just said to me, you know, maybe, maybe they just don't care about us anymore. And there was a kind of palpable feeling about that. I mean, Somaliland, for instance, if you if you kind of is one of the poorest countries in the world, although it's it's much more stable than Somalia, which is also one of the poorest countries in the world. So there's not a huge amount of resilience. And I think it it's interesting as well. Maybe this is going slightly off topic, but in Somaliland, um, 
the biggest market in the capital, Hargesia, burnt down about three weeks ago, which is also having a huge impact. So, you know, the government estimates that that could be as much as £1.5 billion worth of damage. So they're already having to respond to that. They're trying to respond to drought. The international funding really isn't there to help. So I don't think the outlook is cheery. I mean, the other thing is that it should be raining right now. It's not. You know, I think there are some warnings that by summer we might be using the famine word. I mean, there are some quite rigorous technical restrictions about what that means and how you get to it, which we're not at yet nationwide. But yes, it is all quite bleak, really. It's not a good situation. So from your estimation, is the impact of the war in Ukraine and the blockade of of Ukrainian grain is that sort of I don't want to sound flippant but almost the cherry on top of all the other problems that Somaliland and Somalia are facing I think that that is definitely the case I mean it was a difficult situation even before Ukraine um I think Ukraine has had a twofold impact one is just the triggering massive food price hikes we've seen you know record food prices across many regions of the world, including Somaliland. And the World Food Programme has estimated that Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya are among the most at risk of the shocks of the global wheat trade. But on the other side of the coin, we also, you know, as I've just laid out, funding is an issue. And the war in Ukraine, as as someone said to me, soaking up funds, soaking up aids. Now, quite rightly, what was going on in Ukraine is horrendous. And there are finite resources, but the knock-on impacts for the Horn of Africa are pretty pretty stark did you see any evidence or would would you might expect in the next few weeks or months any political instability to come from the increased food prices because of the the lack of grain so i didn't really see that in Somaliland at all if i'm honest um it is a very stable country with a, a, a population who are incredibly proud of what they've achieved there with given given the scenario but i think it's you know definitely the case that there are some some people are telling me that you know across across the region, probably including Somaliland, there have been some local skirmishes over the small amount of pasture or water that's left, and I think that it's definitely the case that food prices are triggering upheaval. I mean, Somalia is a difficult place anyway with the presence of Al Shabab. Um, it's hard to know. Someone else described it to me as you know. It's hard to know whether dominoes are going to fall, but definitely across the world, dominoes are going to fall because of this. Well, social unrest. If you can't feed your family, you're going to protest, right? Yes, I don't necessarily think that there's going to be like a lot of instability in Somaliland, but um, I think there are a lot of countries that are facing that outlook. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our for our listeners who, who do listen in from all over the world to, to know about the links between the conflicts in Ukraine and, and what you saw in the Horn of Africa? I think it's a really interesting example of how interconnected our world is. You know, a war 5,000 miles away from one country, it it kind of boggles the mind that it's having such a big impact. I mean, I think that one of the things people keep telling me is, you know, there is still lots that can be done. So 15 million people are experiencing acute hunger or starvation across the Horn of Africa. If nothing changes and there's not more rain, that could hit 20 million by the end of the year. It's a lot of people. And, you know, I'd be, I think the other thing that's, stress to stress is actually that this is already triggering an internal migration crisis so you know we were driving along a road and we saw a woman called Nora and her family she's 50 Um, she was migrating for the first time in search of she had 20 goats left she'd hired a van with the last of her savings to try and move to an area that she thought that there was more chance of having water we met lots of people like that many people in 
internal displacement camps already. Across Somalia and Somaliland, there are estimates estimates that 700,000 people have already been forced to leave their home in search of water. So I think it's, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that are coming together. It was a bad situation already, but it is undoubtedly the case that the conflict in Ukraine and the consequences on the global wheat trade and fertiliser trade and sunflower oil and fuel, of course, too, is pushing an already bad situation into a catastrophe. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.